Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. On today's episode, I have a part two discussion with Rendell Eric. We talked about summer scouting in the last episode, but this one focuses a lot more on early season hunting and strategy. It's sort of a conversational format where we just talk and throughout the process dive into quite a few specific rabbit holes. When we start the recording, we're talking about hunting fresh sign versus hunting spots that you found in the postseason without necessarily having the fresh sign. But then we shift to talking about crop rotations and early season ag field setups and bedding how deer will bed in corn and maybe use waterways, but you can still glass or set up on them while they're in that pattern before the harvest. We also discuss hill country, including how to take advantage of wind switches, learning to identify key transition areas and river bottoms to set up on, primary versus secondary food and browse and staging areas, what to do differently in areas with a high tonnage per acre of browse, using wind and thermals to set up, and even specifics like height in the tree on early season hunts and other equipment. I think this is one of my favorite discussions overall with Rendell, and I hope you guys are able to enjoy the content. Before we get started, I have a quick message about the Spartan Forge app, which you can get a 20% discount on by using the code DIY. The app allows you to do all of your standard mapping, navigation in the field, and waypoint management. You can currently choose from three different satellite views, topo, and in many areas, aerial imagery at multiple time points throughout history, view public and private lands, color code your permission status on those private lands, view all of your forecasted and historical weather info, add journaling entries for your hunts that automatically tag the weather conditions and wind for that time period, and view a deer movement prediction powered by machine learning based on collared deer studies across the country. I also have a walkthrough video posted on my YouTube channel that you can use to physically see the app in more detail. And with that, let's dive back into the episode. I had even gotten to the point where I'd find spots in the spring and find the right wind direction. I'd go hunt it yeah. in the season, like regardless of what else was going on, regardless of like most recent information or anything, you'd yeah. see the spot and there was a ton of sign there and you just throw a sit at it versus going in and spot checking it and see if it's actually hot. Then I do that. I do that sometimes and still end up killing the buck. I mean, heck last year, man, when I came up on that point, dude, there was no sign whatsoever. There was one little tiny rub, and that was it. But I had enough confidence that the honey locust would pull the deer in. So I just sat on it anyways. When most guys probably would have went by it, they never would have hunted there. As I, there's so many big bucks I find in Iowa, man. They're just not laying sign down, dude. I don't know what the deal is. I don't know if it's because the mature density is really low or they're just so in tune with, like, they know leaving sign gets them in danger or something. It's kind of interesting because I won't really find really good sign until I'm around that core area, and it's a really tiny area. Yeah, that's interesting. I find some states there's more sign than others. Like when I go to yeah. North Dakota, I hardly ever find rubs. I don't know why. There's mm -hmm. enough 130s to 140s running around that you'd think there would be more. Yeah. We'll find scrapes, and we'll find elk rubs probably more often than the deer rubs. So I wonder if there's like some kind of a relationship between those two species. Like if for whatever reason, the bucks 
don't rub as heavily or if there's just more land that they can spread out more. I don't know. Yeah. But it seems like you still get bucks that are in the same vicinity and you would think that they would lay down more sign. I don't know what always, you know, causes that or not. Yeah, I don't know either. It feels like the younger deer, man, I see them ripping up crap, man, like the little tiny basket racks. Dude, there'll be like 40 rubs in there, man. And I'm just like, it's all crap, tiny sign, you know. But like the big mature deer, they might leave like maybe one giant rub or like one scrape. And that's it, man. Even when you get in their bed, their bedding area is not all lit up most of the time. It's just you find the giant bed and you're like, oh, I can never hunt this. Like, you know, and that light bulb goes off. And then I pick them up on camera in there and I'm like, what the heck, man? Like, that's how I really key in on. Sometimes I look for spots like that. I'm like, there's no sign here, but it sets up for a big buck. And a lot of guys keep going where I'm like, I'm going to throw a camera in here. And nine times out of 10, you'll pick up a big buck in a spot like that. Yeah. It does make it tough when you're doing that scouting and you're trying to set up on the best sign that you can find right now. And you're not necessarily maybe diving into the beds because maybe it's during the season. Yeah. And you just kind of, you know, you're looking for that sign. But if you don't cut a big track, then it's it, it's like he's a ghost almost. Almost, It's like you can't yeah. find him until you either get a picture <laughs> of him or it's like you just wait until the pre-rut when he starts laying down more obvious sign. Yeah, and it's like – and some of the sign I find postseason, you know, it's not there anymore. I'll scout my – I'll hop in and it'll be dead. Like there won't be nothing. And I'm like – then I'll just bounce out to the nearest bedding for that wind. Um, I think the crop rotation, too, I don't really – I talk about I don't pay attention to food a lot, but I, I think crop rotation is kind of key, but not necessarily for my pattern. I think it's where uh, the bigger bucks are going to be. Like, Because the October, man, like the beans are already brown. So I find that October 1st, all the big bucks are on corn. The mature deer, if there's a waterway or a woodlot, anything surrounded by corn, the bigger bucks are bedded in there, and they're not in the big timbers or, or anything like that. They're mm-hmm. living in the corn, and they're feeding on the corn already October 1st, and they've already dumped the beans. The only time I really see them eat on beans is if it's a like a secondary food source. Like They come out of their bed. They'll hit a bean field, eat some of the brown pods, and then they keep going out to wherever the nearest corn is, which I've noticed like that 200-inch buck that I was on, he did that quite a bit. He'd come out and eat in the beans and then long line out to a corn field. But he didn't make it that far in daylight. He'd only hit, he'd only get to that bean field in daylight and then move out after that to the beans. So I don't know. There's a couple spots where uh, if it's beans, I won't get any mature bucks. I just get all young bucks, and then right when it's corn again, then I get mature bucks in there. And, like, some of those spots I've been hunting, like, 10 years, and I've just noticed that on my cameras over time. That's interesting. I've noticed on certain spots, especially if there's spots that you can see from the road, if there's corn, there's just more deer activity in general. Yeah. If it's beans, and you can see from the road clear out to the wood line, it's like, not only will you see deer less out in the fields, but it seems like the woods are just less full of deer in general, or they're, you know, pushed further back or something like that. But it's like when yeah, there's I corn think... there, it's almost like they just shift their patterns to be more close to the edge of that field or even in the field. Well, I think it's like a safety. It's like they're using it for hor- uh, horizontal cover. Yeah. So they feel safe in there because you can't see them. You think about it, it's really a perfect, it's like a very perfect cover. 
because yeah. it's loud. You can hear stuff coming in it. It's easy to walk through, and there's food in it. Yeah, for sure. So on windy days, I just go right through the corn. It's my favorite, man, because I can get anywhere I want to hunt through the corn, and the deer will never see me or hear me because that – it's like when you're walking through cattails that corn kind of uh, – insulates your noise when you're inside of it i think and if it's windy they're just hearing it in general anyway so you can get away with it it used to be easier when guys were planting like 30 inch rows now they're planting like 17 inch rows so it's a lot harder to walk in but i put sunglasses on and i pull my hat down and just go man and just trump right through it yeah yeah i was gonna say i think i feel like i remember watching videos from like the 80s or you know decades ago with the wenzels stocking yeah. cornfields and yeah, I love that video. <laughs> yeah. I remember like trying to do that when I was younger and uh thinking like, man, this is, looks a lot harder than what they were trying to do in the video. And then come to realize like they were hunting way wider corn rows, which oh, made a big yeah. difference. Thirty plus inch rows. I blew a buck out of public like three years ago doing that. I was walking through the cornfield and as soon as I seen him, he seen me, but he was bedded down in like the first five rows of the corn facing the woodlot, catching the wind coming from the woods that was public. And I just was coming through the corn and big old tank of a buck, man. So I think they bed in the corn more than what guys think, honestly. Do you think that they bed in the corn? Like kind of, I don't want to say haphazardly, that's not the right word. Do you think that they bed in the corn a lot of times based on the wind and that can move around quite a bit? Or do you think that there's like features within the corn, little rises or ditches or things like that? that will usually cause them to bed more predictably in the uh, wide open corn field. If they're, if they're on the transition line, like the first five rows of the corn, it's usually wind based. If it's a waterway, a wood lot or anything like that, I find them in there on any kind of wind, man. They just stay in there. Gotcha. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. It's been a while since I've, actually hunted some of those places that had standing corn. And, uh, I, one thing that was actually interesting, I was talking to a guy today, there's some areas of our state that had a lot of rain this spring, yeah, heavy flooding. And this guy was a farmer. He was predicting that the corn was going to stay in longer this year. And just the crops in general are going to be a later harvest. Yeah. Probably not sense. even like harvest till November type of thing. Yeah. And you're going to struggle in the rut. Right, right. The rut's going to be a lot different. The pre-rut's going to be a lot different. Um, and early season, I mean, last year there was a lot of acorns around. This year, I'm, yeah. like, it was a bumper crop last year in some of these areas. So I would assume that the combination of the, you know, really wet spring plus the fact that there's a lot of acorns last year probably means it's going to be more ag-heavy. And the fact yeah. that the crops are going to be staying in there later could mean exactly what you say, like the early season and even up in through the rut until that corn is gone could be a little bit more challenging yeah because the does will hide in the corn a ton during the rut to get away from the bucks so you'll notice a big uptick on bucks once the people start harvesting the fields here you'll just see bucks running wild everywhere because they're used to living in the corn all summer and then it pushes them back in the woodlot so it makes it almost a little bit easier to hunt and you'll have you'll have some new bucks show up or bucks that you lost like i'll pick up bucks in the summertime and then I'll lose them for a while, and I think they just go out into the corn and then come back in once the corn gets harvested. Yeah, that could be for sure. So you hunt a lot of field edge. That's when I start hunting, like, 
bedding areas within the corn. I'll actually hunt those waterways, but I'll do it off the ground. I'll spot and st I'll just stalk in the waterway, or I'll 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 glass them too, and I'll see uh, how they're working out of those big waterways and stuff. And then I can get in there and set up. I might just stand in like a couple rows of the corn and break the corn off, so I can shoot and w let them come by me and try to get a shot on them. And when you say waterway, are you talking like a gap in the corn where there's maybe like a 10 foot wide Creek running through it? Yeah. Creek, uh, natural drainage, just a grassy lane. There'll be like a, a terrace or something running through there. Any kind of like tile lines, the tile lines, they don't seem to plant as much. So they just grow up with that, that wild grass. When you drive around, you'll see them. They just bed right down in that and they move within that and they'll move in the daylight really good. Cause I'll see a lot of bucks man they'll be like a mile away from the nearest timber just out in the middle of nowhere and they just pop out of those waterways by the roads and stuff and i'll just glass them for like an hour before dark so let's say hypothetical you're in a state that has an earlier opener yeah do you think that in that case your focus would shift maybe more towards finding deer that are on beans if I'm hunting destination food, I would, but I still see them bedding in those corn. If there's a waterway in the corn, they're in there. Once the corn gets like chest high on me, they move into those for the rest of the summer until they're harvested most of the time. And they'll move out to destination food sources. They almost use it like a highway. So you could just cut them off coming out of those uh, waterways, go into like beans so I push up to those as bedding. It'll be like primary bed hunting, but I'm not hunting like a point or a swamp. Like I'm just hunting that waterway exit. Yeah. It's kind of like, it's kind of like if you had, you know, a marsh or cattails bumping yeah. up to a field, except in this yeah. case it's corn. It's not, but they might not be feeding on the corn. Like you said, they're bedding in the corn. They're moving to that better food source. But then as soon as exactly. that better food source dries up, the beans start turning brown. Then maybe they transition to feeding off the corn or maybe acorns or whatever the yeah. case is. And I never hear anybody talk about it at all. Like some old timers, when I first moved to Iowa, they just talk, they talked to me about it. I always heard them say, oh, the I got all these spots and they're not going to be good until the corn comes out. And I was like, what? And they're like, yeah, the bucks live in there. And then just out glassing during the summer, man, I've noticed it big time. Like all over the state, anywhere I drive by with those waterways, just tons of deer pour out of them right before dark. It could be open ag, river bottom, hill country. It doesn't seem to really matter. They like those waterways a ton if they have them close by to bed in. And that's something that's pretty easy to at least get an idea of e-scouting too. If you got crop fields and then you, you can see those waterways running in and around them and then you just got to go verify if it's corn or something else growing in it. Yeah, you can pick them out super easy. Like instantly you can see them on Onyx or Spartan Forge or whatever you're using. Yep. And then I like to glass those from the road a lot because the deer will long line way out towards the road. Like they're crossing. If there's beans on the other side of the road, they'll come out of that waterway and cross the road at night to get to the beans. So I'll just set up on them and glass them. I got a lot of videos from last year that I videoed bucks coming out of those waterways that I can send you later when we get off the podcast. So you're saying like the waterway runs through the corn and yep. maybe across the road connects that other food source 
and they'll go from the corn and make their first move toward the waterway and then just follow the waterway all the way out. Yep. Exactly. Gotcha. They're using it like a high, like they're, you know, you got a switch grass and you cut a, you mow a lane through it and you use it to access your stand. They're using the corn the same way you're using the switch grass that you mowed a lane through to walk to get to your blind or whatever you're hunting yeah. out of, you know, like guys do. Yeah. Well, the other thing that it reminded me of is we have swamps up here that are not always just cattail marshes. A lot of times it's just wire grass or, or hummocks yeah. or something that's shorter. And if you have a creek or a drainage system, like sometimes there's man-made drainage systems running through those. Yeah. A lot of times you'll have deer trails just like right paralleling those waterways. Yeah. And they'll, I find they'll cut out of the cattails and just get on that more open lane and just walk that straight line. I find the bigger deer usually tend to be in the water, like down in those ditches, especially here in Iowa. If the ditch is, I don't know, more than a couple feet deep where it can hide you, I find that the mature bucks are using those ditches to move around a ton on the farmland because it keeps them down out of sight from humans and stuff like that. So they use those to move around a ton too. So if you got that type of scenario working up where you've maybe glassed deer in August or whatever, maybe in September, and they're using those waterways going to some kind of primary food source, let's say it's beans and let's say by the time the season actually opens, they're done hitting the beans and maybe it's a secondary food source, but primarily they're now in the corn in this scenario. Yeah. How are you going to, how are you going to hunt them? I'm going to hang right over the, the waterway so I can shoot down in it or I can shoot on the edge and I'll probably just push back into the bedding like I normally do and just try to catch them coming out. That way I don't have to worry about, if they're hitting the primary or the secondary food source, because I'm using that same waterway to access into their bedding because it hides me too. So I'll stay down in there, my sense in the water, and then I'll just pop right up the bank, kind of like I'm hunting a river and I'll just get in a tree and you just got to be ready to shoot because sometimes your thermals, but usually that running water will pull your thermals away from the deer when they're coming down to go to the food sources that night so you can you can get away with that just being right on the edge with your thermals dropping you just got to make sure the wind's not blowing into the bedding what if the waterway doesn't have any trees it's just grass and whatever drainage ditch running through yeah you better get a ghillie suit on and hug tight somewhere to the bank and be able to shoot down in there or you can hide down in the ditch if you find like the right setup if there's like a big uh wash out and there's a bunch of grass or like a lay down in there or something if you don't have that then you got to slide up on the edge of the creek and get into the taller grass on that diversity line okay well back in that first scenario where you you had trees or something you could climb in how do you know you access from the road you're walking up this waterway how do you know how far back to go in what's it let's say this cornfield is you know let's say it's 40 acre gridded corn and you've got this waterway running through I mean, those deer, I would think, could be bedded anywhere along that waterway. You know, how do you know how far to push from the road before you pick a tree to set up in? I either scouted it already during the postseason, and I know right where the main bedding area is, or I ran a camera in there, or I glassed it from the road. Or sometimes I'll actually get down in the waterway and just glass down the waterways if it's straight enough. And then you can see 
where they're coming out. But if you scout your way in, you can see the trails going up the banks out of the waterway. And then you can guess, all right, well, he's hitting this cornfield. He's got to be coming here, and you'll see the fresh tracks and everything. Then you, I know they keep pushing. And just like experience dealing with the buck bedding and e-scouting and stuff, I know enough where I can pick out the spots where they're probably going to be bedded at. And do you find that there's a correlation between like a lot of diversity or like non-straight lines? Maybe you got like some kind of a crooked creek running through fields and you've got maybe beans, corn and beans, like all kind of like three different fields that all kind of line up in that same spot where you just get like a bunch of stuff going on. Maybe there's some brush in the creek too. And like, do you find, cause I would think that a spot like that would, you could circle on the map and be like, this looks pretty good versus just like, you know, a ditch that runs through a cornfield. Do you find that in practice that tends to be more true that if you can get a lot of diversity in those ag fields, that tends to be better? Yeah, I think the mature deer tend to be in those spots with all that diversity because they have a lot of different options and they don't have to move very far to be able to transition from early season food source to like mid-season food source. They got a lot of different types of browse. So the more diversity, the better I find. If there is a little turn or something, I think maybe they feel a little safer than a straight line because I feel like they can, they feel like they're hidden a little bit better. Um, you do have to watch out for like the satellite bedding. There might be does or younger bucks bedded closer to where you're accessing from. So you might bump into them, but it's just the risk you got to take. Sometimes you bump them and they just go right up over the bank out into the field and they never fly back to the bedding where the mature buck is. Um, if there's a terrain sweetener, like an oxbow, uh, I call them like a, creek bench or a drainage ditch bench like it'll just be like a bench on hill country it'll be like halfway down the creek and it'll just make like a little bench like a shelf and a mature buck will bed right there i've walked right up to the edge of a creek and looked down and there would be a mature buck bedding right on that shelf in the waterway and nobody would ever guess that that buck was down there hmm. And accessing, I imagine the best case scenario is you got whatever wind direction throughout the day is blowing one direction along that waterway. And you just pick whatever direction it's blowing access from that way. Just try and stay tight to the water so that when once the evening hits, the thermals also pull down toward the water. And if a deer shows up on one side of the waterway or the other, you can hopefully shoot. Yeah, I like a just off wind, but you will get some swirl. So I like a straight wind that's coming right down in my face when I'm coming up the waterway because I feel like you get less swirling because it's kind of like a, a holler in hill country. You can get away with mm -hmm. it coming straight down. But if you get that crosswind, it can hit the trees and stuff. And even the corn, it'll kind of make that backflow scenario where it can bounce off and turn right back in and come right back towards you then get down in that waterway some. So that's why I like that just slightly off wind if it's coming across. Or my favorite is just wind right in my face when I'm going up. Yep. I mentioned a second ago it's been a while since I've hunted a place like that, but I just remembered that last season we went and did a scouting trip in October and found an area that was very much like this. It's the same area I sent you those pictures of, of that, okay. of that one buck late November. Yep. But uh, we found a – a creek drainage that was cutting down and had ag on one side 
And then on the other side, it was just like thick river bottom, like just like a whole bunch of brush, had some bigger trees. Uh, but the creek was a nice big, probably 10 to 15 foot deep ditch that was winding and twisting and turning. And on the side where we had the, the brush, there was a big scraper already second week, October. So we hung okay. our camera on that to soak all year. And unfortunately that one got stolen. I was so looking forward to seeing what the pictures are going to look like on that camera because I know there's big deer in that area. But Yeah, there was probably a big buck on there. That's why it got stolen. A guy was on one. Um, there, There is a scenario, too. It's like swamp hunting almost. If there's an island, a woodlot out in the cornfield, the deer will do their traditional bedding on that with the wind over the back, and they'll be facing out to the corn. So whichever way the wind's coming over the woodlot, they'll be on that transition edge between the woodlot and the corn. And if you have a waterway that hooks to one of those or there's one close by, they'll be bedded on that woodlot, kind of like an island, and then they'll move to that uh, waterway, and then they'll move out and use that like as a highway to go to like their primary food source for the night. So you can, uh, you can try to get in there on that woodlot in the morning but you got to go in super early, like maybe two o'clock in the morning and get in there. Or, uh, you can try to slip in there through the corn, but usually those woodlots are so small, like the deer's going to light you up if you try to get in there in the afternoon. So you might have to back off of that some and hunt on the ground or try to find something to get in on that waterway. If there's any trees, if there's not, then you might as well just sit in the corn and wait for them to come out from that Island type scenario. Yeah. There's a, a property I used to hunt on back when I was in college. It's probably 40 acres of which there's only five acres of woods. And it was right yeah. in the middle of corn, just corn all the way around it. Just like one little grassy lane leading into that woodlot. Yeah. And so it was the only place you could climb a tree. And so that was where I would hunt. And there was always deer moving through that. But there was one big buck. And what I learned is that he was betting like on basically a pothole, like a little, like, I don't know, maybe a third of an acre pothole in the middle of the corn with a couple like brushy shrubby trees around it. Yeah. And that was a part of the, the place I didn't have access to cause it was too close to like the horses or whatever. Yeah. But I was like, you know, it's kind of interesting that that deer, like all the other deer, no problem in daylight, like going through that woodlot, but that deer, yeah. he would wait until it got dark before he got by the little pothole and make his way to the, the woodlot throughout that corn. Yeah, I mean, they can, I think they pattern you. So if you're putting pressure on that and he catches your scent on that woodlot, he's going to push off to like deeper prime bedding. Mm -hmm. And that's probably his prime bedding anyways. It's the safest bedding around. So when I'm e-scouting, like I'm really looking for those spots like that because all he needs is a bed the size of his body to fit in. I've seen just little patches of like some grown up CRP kind of out where the farmer kind of missed like the planner messed up or something. Yeah. CRP. That's, that's something that, uh, seems like whenever I see CRP in ag country where there's public land around, it always seems to be good, especially if it's really remote. Like the, the public land challenge in Minnesota a few years back, we, uh, Logan, who was filming on that time, we climbed up this bluff and we got into a strip of CRP that basically separated the woods from an alfalfa field that was still green. This is mid September. Yeah. And we're seeing does out there, you know, hour and a half before dark. And then there ended up being a buck who was bedded right on just the edge of the, the field in the CRP. It's so all he had to do is 
he could just watch the field all day, and he just stood up right at last light, and we saw him. He was a nice puck for that area. But point was that CRP, especially given that, like, it wasn't corn, it was alfalfa, and they're really exposing the alfalfa, as opposed to all the other places around where they could have bedded in the woods, a lot of those deer were either bedded in or spending a ton of time in that CRP buffer between the woodlot and the, the ag. Yeah, they like that transition line, the diversity. They get that horizontal cover like they do in the corn. And uh, I find, like, in the CRP, they'll be bedded in places where you'll never think of. Like, there will be no trees around. They're just actually in the CRP. There's a spot that I know. It's just a giant hill, and there's a buck bedded directly on top of the hill. So the winds, he's just relying on the CRP to kind of block the wind off of him, but he's watching the access that most guys access that piece into. Instead of being down in, like, the thick willows and stuff, he's right up on top in that CRP watching down. Or they'll just be off the edge, like I said on that, like you were saying, of off the woodlot. They'll, sometimes they'll bed in the woodlot if it has some elevation, like if it kind of lays out like a ridge so they have a high point to look out of. But if it's more flatter terrain, like you said, they're going to be off of the woodlot, off into it, kind of like they do in the swamp, you know. They won't be exactly on the island sometimes. They'll just mm-hmm. be pushed off into the cattail. So it kind of sets up just like you're hunting a swamp almost. And then they just go through the CRP to their food source. And that's where, like, the ghillie suit and you crawling in there and – just trying to hide the best you can. The hardest part is getting up and getting drawn on the deer when you're in that open country like that. Yeah. And those types of areas too, they're usually pretty easy to find on aerial maps. If you know what you're looking for, because a lot of times if it's CRP one year, it's going to you know continue to be not farmed because maybe they haven't, haven't tilled that far just due to like whatever reason, maybe it's too hard to get the tractors back there or like whatever the reason is, or maybe they, there's a, you know, tax advantage to it or something. Yeah. In Iowa, they got a bunch of CRP programs that you can enroll in and they pay you for your acres you've gotten CRP. So you can pretty much count on it being CRP every year unless I think it's like there's a certain year minimum. There's a couple different year stages a farmer can sign up for. So they usually just stay in CRP so you can count on it. You can get on the that new mapping that Spartan Forge has you can really zoom in and see the high detail. I can like see the reeds and the swamps and stuff like that. And you can see the deer trails really well. And like the CRP coming mm-hmm. off of woodlots and stuff on the Spartan forge. Yeah. I, <clears throat> I really like that too, from the aspect that if you do get up in a tree, like cattails are tall enough and corn's kind of the same way where you can tell that a deer's moving through it, but you wouldn't necessarily always be able to shoot down into it. But CRP is enough cover to where the deer feel comfortable moving through it. But oftentimes if you're up in a tree, you could still shoot down into it. And you can see and you can like glass across it much easier. So whenever I find it, I always definitely take note. Yeah, I'll actually go in and uh, glass off the ground a lot if it's CRP. I'll find the highest point in the area and just take a spot and scope and a tripod and sit up there and just watch from as far as away as I can get so I don't mess with the area any. I think where a lot of guys mess up when they access CRP, a lot of it's only up to, like, your stomach or your chest. And they walk in, and I feel like the the deer will see you coming 
some a long ways off. So I like to, I'll crawl the whole way. I'll put like knee pads on and stuff like that and gloves. I'll put my bow in a sling and I'll strap it to my back and I'll just crawl the whole way in there so that deer's not, I'm not worried about skylighting my head and my upper shoulders and stuff. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and do you find that oftentimes, I mean, will deer bed in the CRP that you see from, you know, July all the way through to October, November, oftentimes? Whenever that food source dries up and then they'll move out. And then sometimes during the rut, mature bucks will push a doe out into the middle of the CRP to get them isolated from other bucks. Especially if there's like a pond or a woodlot, uh, mature deer will push a doe out there during the rut. And uh, unless it gets super heavy pheasant hunted, when guys are running dogs and they're running all over in there, sometimes that might push the deer out, which doesn't open until the rut here in Iowa. So I like to hunt those spots early before like pheasant hunters and stuff get in there really heavy. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, another, I guess, food related thing that we kind of brushed on a little bit last episode too, was maybe some of the initial food sources, not necessarily the primary, but yeah. You know, like that buck you killed last year, there was maybe ag nearby, but there was the locust trees right there. There's the, the brush and the shrubs and stuff that they're nipping on as they get out of their beds. And in some of those instances, like if you have a, you know, thick, brushy creek drainage separating an ag field, then obviously there's going to be some browsing there. But especially early season, how do you look at the different layers of food and take that into consideration as you're looking to make a setup? I'll, uh, I always look at the browse first as a secondary food source, egg corns, honey locusts, aquatic vegetation. It just depends on what type of I'm terrain I'm in. I'm looking for the thicker bedding areas that have a lot of browse where a mature buck can just stand up and browse until dark. You might, some parts of the country you got like apple trees that are way back. Um, sometimes like Osage orange trees in Iowa, the deer will eat them sometimes. It's not like a preferred, preferred thing, but they might browse on it a little bit. Um, so just different types of things they'll eat that they normally aren't eating when they go to their destination food. I really like to key in on and I like to find uh, as many as possible in one that's closest to the bedding area that the wind sets up for that day and i'm hoping i can get in that 100 yard bubble because i feel like that buck's going to come that direction to go to that secondary food source and sometimes you'll have some places i hunt have corn 360 degrees all the way around the public like it's really hard to tell like all right well which way he's gonna go you know you got four directions he could be moving off the bed so that's where I don't really worry about primary food source unless there's just one. Then I think, all right, well, he's going to make his way that way. But they don't always go straight to the primary food source. Sometimes they'll go somewhere else and feed until dark and then move out. Like if they're going into a thermal hub or something, they might get in that hub first and then move out. And that hub might not be in the direction of that food source, but they feel safe dropping down in there. Or they're checking a scrape or something that got close by. So I really like to isolate in on the secondary food source because I feel that's probably the first place they're going to go. 
out of the bedding unless they have the brows like right in their beds. Like, you know, Hill Country, the acorns are just dropping all around him. He can lay in his bed and just eat acorns all night. And he doesn't have to really make that big move until really late. Or he's got super thick brows around him, uh, like the red osier dogwood, willows, are other two types of uh, secondary food sources I look at. Yeah, the uh, a lot of the places I've been hunting recently, they'll have a lot of either like early successional growth, fresh clear cuts, uh, briars, um, just various forbs and things like that that are pretty much all over the place early season. They start to dry up as the season moves on. Yeah. Um, and then acorns, of course. But it seems like oftentimes even without getting to the acorns, you know, when you see a deer, it's like, almost always early season they're munching on something um, yeah. and, and maybe it's even like a, a young you know aspen or like poplar trees that are growing up yeah so that for me it, it makes it easy but it also makes it hard at the same time because when that stuff is all over the landscape then it's like oh well i know the deer are in this five acre pocket <laughs> but trying to pick the exact tree to set up and you know when they're in that area can be a little bit tougher Whereas other yeah. other habitat types and other terrains, it's where the food is much more isolated. And you're like, well, here's where they're going to bed. And here's the yeah. primary food source. There's a big white oak tree right here. I verified dropping acorns. And there's like, um, you know, there's there's some browse that's on this side of the bedding. Then it becomes a lot easier for you to like put that plan together. Yeah, if there's a high, high yield of poundage for browse in an area... I focus way more in on my postseason scouting uh, details that I found to more pick how the wind's coming that day, and I'm going to use more of my bedding information to try to dissect the area versus the secondary food sources because there's so many of them. So I'm going to push um, back into the bedding a little bit more and use my intel through my scouting to help me break down the bedding area instead of relying on like that secondary food source information. Yeah. And we were kind of talking about this earlier a little bit, but in that scenario where you, you can make the decision and, and say, I'm going to, I'm going to go based off of my scouting where I know the bed should be and try and get in there close. How do you know it's, and, and you, you can't confirm, let's say, because there's not sign the buck that you think is using it. He's just not laying down sign that you can see right now. And maybe the ground is dry or whatever. You can't really tell that he's laying down tracks. You can't find his track. But you think he might be in there. How do you know and how do you make that decision of, do I go in there and push and try and make a sit where I think he should be based off of that scouting? Or should I hang back and not hunt that spot until, you know, maybe later in October when he starts laying down more obvious sign and you can tell he's in there for sure? Um. A lot can play into that. There's a lot of factors. How many other deer am I on, on that wind direction? If I think that's the primo bed, even though I'm not picking up sign, from what I experienced in Iowa where the mature deer aren't putting down as much sign as I find, like sometimes I won't find hardly any sign unless you're within like a 30-yard bubble of that bed. So knowing that, I think I take a little bit more risk than a lot of people would. I mean, if I'm confident and go with my gut and I think he's there and it's the best betting for that wind 
And just having that experience with not hunting a lot of sign, I'll probably still sit on it. Gotcha. And we had talked about this before too, but I feel like when I talk to people who consistently outside of the rut get on mature deer, there's like that one common thing, especially when they're, when they have an aggressive mentality. So they all spend a lot of time putting together a list of deer and they know that if they blow up one opportunity, they got another one they can go on to. Yeah. I think that's key for me. Um, it keeps me, uh, just going and taking a lot of risk. Cause I feel like if you only have four deer, I think you're just too cautious. You, you're like so worried about ruining these four deer that you found because you don't have a lot of options and you're hanging back too much. You might give yourself away because that deer might cut your uh, scent trail because you're stage hunting your way in. And you got to worry about more of pressure because guys could get in there on the same deer you're on and blow them out. So I like to have as many deer as I can find, like, I probably like to have 10 or more deer that gives me a lot of flexibility to hunt. And I feel like if you know the area really well and you did your scouting Intel, if I do blow that deer up, it's just going to push him into another bedding area that I already scouted. And then I can just slide in there on the next win for that bedding area and still have an opportunity to kill him. Yeah. That's a good point. I didn't think of that. Push him into an area where he's killable. Yeah. Some of the spots are like almost impossible to get into. So I might actually go in there on purpose and just light it up, just lay my scent down, roll around in his bed, like just <laughs> leave, leave a code in there, whatever you got to do. And it'll push him into somewhere that's a little bit more accessible where I can sneak into. As uh, Dan Infall calls it like stacking bedding areas. Yep. Yep. That's who I had first heard that term from as well. And it makes a lot of sense when you think about it. When you also think about, like the property that he kind of showcased when he talked about that strategy where it laid out like a, there's like this line of like a long rectangular piece and you just kind of, you know, systematically work your way further and further back until you're in the back corner. And like, he's, you yeah. know, th that's all that deer's got left at that point. And, uh, sometimes if you, if you really got some good guts, you can do the Andre DeQuisto bump and dump and just blow him out and set right back up on his bed on that J hook. Cause he'll come back in down wind. Sometimes, uh, last year, a buck blew out, and within 30 minutes, he came right back into the bedding area where he was, where he got blown out of. Yeah, yeah. We've talked about this before. That buck that I had that opportunity at last year, how he came in from such an oddball direction and came right down my access trail, and it's yeah. like well, that didn't make any sense because you know we figured he'd be bedded up on the up on the rise in the, the corner of the clear cut. Yeah. I thought about like, well, what, maybe in that scenario I had bumped him out and maybe yeah, he was doing a big loop around to try and get downwind and he just ended up like walking right past me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Cause I was thinking that right when you told me, I was like, you had to bump that buck or that buck knew you were there. Like that's the explanation for that. I instantly thought about it. I was like, oh, that buck knew you were in there somewhere and he was just coming in downwind to check it out. Yeah, it's definitely possible. It's also possible he was just bedded out somewhere behind me. I just walked past him. Um, yeah. Because there's that place, there's bedding opportunities everywhere. They can bed in the clear cuts. They can bed in the deadfall. And there's hundreds of acres of both. And there's a lot of clear cut that's of the right age where you got briars and ferns and stuff to give them a lot of browse and, and good cover as they're walking through it. 
Uh, the interesting thing to talk about is uh, I've had deer trail me like a coonhound where I walked and access to the tree. They got their nose down and they actually follow my scent all the way to the tree that I'm I'm in and then blow out when they get up close to me and they pick me out of the tree. Yep. So I find it interesting because a lot of guys think, oh, they smell you, they're gone. And then I got these bucks trailing me all the way to my tree stand just to like figure out where I'm at. Like they're trying to find where I was so they can avoid it later, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I've never really put the, put the pieces together as to the why they might do that. That's definitely a really plausible explanation. We had that happen last year. My wife and I were hunting and we had a doe follow us, follow our access trail in until the point where I got downwind of the tree and smelled us. Yeah. And then it blew out. Uh, but until that point, we were, it was just following a scent trail that for all it knew could have gone on for another mile. Yeah. Um, when I've hung trail cameras before, I've had, when I've ran video mode, I've seen mature bucks nose on the ground following where I walked and they follow right up to my trail camera. And then I never see them again. It's like they just, they're pattering you. That's why I have that first sit mentality. Because if you leave your scent in there, I feel like they're going to find out where you're at. They're going to hit that door in the night somewhere if you're hunting close to their bedding. And they're going to go find where you're at. Then they're just going to avoid that area. Yeah. That's something I think about a lot of times too, when you don't always have the full picture and let's say you got a camera in an area and you're using that to get some information. Maybe there's a big buck that was using it. Then you go in there and the buck didn't show in daylight, but he sh showed up at night. And then, you know, you go and hunt it a couple of days later and, you know, there's still no fresh pictures and it's like, okay, well, perhaps that was the last draw. Like he got your scent that one time. That was it. And there's other times yeah. where it's like they come back in still, or maybe there's just younger bucks that come in, but the older yeah. ones have moved on. I've actually set my trail camera up where I could see it from the road and I'd get a picture of mature buck one time. And then I'd be sitting there glassing and I actually watched them go down the trail. My camera's on and then they veer out and loop around my camera and go right back on the trail after they pass it. So he's there. But I, you don't know that because you're not getting camera pictures of him because he's looping your cameras because he patterned me that one time. He's like, oh, he was right here in this area. Then he's going around that spot every single time he goes through there, which is pretty interesting. But every buck has their own personality. Some bucks don't care. It's almost like they're from Hollywood, man, and they love it, dude. They're all in my camera, like smelling it, licking it taking photos every night and the other ones they see it once and then they blow out and you never see them again or they're looping around it like all deer are different yeah yeah i've, I've found that some areas where i put the cameras where there's like a hard obstacle like let's say yeah. there's a river or some kind of swamp that they just don't like to walk through for one reason or the, another maybe like the silt is, is just too soft and they slip down too deep stuff like that where yeah. they have to go in a certain area i'll still get pictures pretty frequently um but yeah if it's more open and they have the opportunity to go around a camera it's like you know why wouldn't they yeah for sure and uh some of the biggest bucks i've killed i've never gotten a picture of them ever i hunted more on the sign even though i had cameras in there and weren't picking them up the sign that i got from postseason or in-season scouting tipped me off that there had to be a big buck in there 
so you you'd be amazed at uh what the deer can get get by around your cameras i've had like four or five cameras in the area and still never got a picture of him but he was there the whole time i just didn't have him in the right spot and i ended up killing him just based on the sign i was reading when i was in there so cameras can fool you yeah well well, it's interesting about that too is i know you're kind of like me and that you like to put cameras a lot of times on scrapes yeah so it's like you would think if you had a really good scrape that at some point all those bucks are going to hit that scrape but maybe he's just one of those deer that he doesn't hit it himself. Maybe he just loops downwind of the, of the licking branch to smell what deer have been in there. Yeah, that 200-inch buck I was hunting, I made a scrape in there and put a camera on it and never got a single single picture of him ever. And it was close by where he he came out into the field every single time, and I would just never be able to get him. He'd loop around downwind, like he said, and just probably smell it from downwind because – when I had him 60 yards away from me, I noticed that he would come down and then take a big loop and then loop into the field. Yeah. I know, I know some guys like Johnny Stewart and I think Steve Shirk might do this too, but I know Johnny does for sure is he'll, he'll put cameras that face like multiple directions or he yeah. might, he might grid cause he's hunting more, more bigger woods in Pennsylvania and it's more open hardwoods a lot of times. Yeah. So a deer might might cross through on like a 300-yard wide, you know, section of land. And so he might put a camera every, you know, 30 or 40 feet across that area. So if that yeah. deer walks through it through there at all, there's a good chance that one of those camera, cameras uh, picks it up. Yeah, and um, I tend to not do that because I'm spread so thin. I have so much ground to cover for inventory that I only put one or two cameras in a place. And then I either get that one photo or I rely more on the sign. I'm not, I don't live or die by the cameras. I use multiple tools to get the job done most of the time. If yeah. the sign's telling me a deer's there and the camera's not, or sometimes vice versa, I'll get a big buck on camera, but the sign's not there. And it's just tighter to his bedding. Like I said, happens a lot here in Iowa on the more mature deer. So you got to be open-minded and have a variety of tools in your bag. Yep. So on, on the, I guess the topic of hunting this stuff early, are there times like you're pretty much hunting every chance you get an opportunity, you're going to go make a play on some deer just based on the wind or is there certain weather or moon or whatever where you're just like, I'm not going to hunt it all day. I'm not going to risk blowing anything out. I don't care about the moon. I usually don't care about the weather. I just hunt when I can hunt as much as I can. And I just play the wind and go, some scenarios there might be a hard spot to access that the weather can influence a little bit like if you get a high pressure in hill country you can hunt the wrong wind and it's going to pull your thermals up so you might set up on a really hard buck bed to get on because you can the high pressure will suck your thermals up so you can get on there on the wrong wind um certain weather might make a buck move to a scrape if you got a rain and he wants to go freshen it up maybe later in october if you still got a tag you could catch him coming out to check those scrapes especially the ones that are between bedding areas like the community scrapes are my favorite because they're consistently worked year round and if you have two bedding areas with a community scrape in the middle it's almost like those bucks are checking each other every single day almost so i really like those a ton so I might slide into one of those after it rains or after a cold front comes through. 
there's certain uh, weather patterns that might keep a buck out later in the morning because I don't really hunt mornings that much, but it might influence them to stay out a little bit later so I can slide into the bedding area and kind of wait for them to come back. Um, that's pretty rare, but I'll still do that. And uh, especially high pressure, it's probably my favorite because you can do a lot of hill country stuff with that high pressure because you can influence your scent with the thermals big time. Yeah, and like we discussed earlier, the hill country especially, if the acorns are falling and it's a heavy acorn year, he might not have to move much, if, if at all, out of his primary bed Yeah. in order to get food before he moves off onto whatever else he's going to eat that night. So in a scenario like that where you know there's a bunch of white oaks dropping and you know that there's white oaks all around his bed, is that a scenario where you're just going to hunt different terrain types until it gets a little bit later in the season? Are you still going to try and make make a play on that that hill country stuff? Um, I I tend to like hunting hill country later into the season, end of October into the rut. It's a little bit easier. It depends on how the hill country is setting up. If I get that high pressure, I tend to go to the hills because I can get away with a lot of stuff to influence my wind. If I find a deer more in the bottom, like the thermal hubs, I might make a play on that early. Uh, if you have zero wind first thing in the morning, you can get down in and out on there and get set up. But sometimes they won't come back into those hubs until later in the morning when the thermal switch and they're rising. So you can get up on the rim of that thermal hub and try to catch them hooking back in like at, I don't know, eight, nine o'clock in the morning or 10 around there. It depends on, you know, how the shadowing is on the hillsides and stuff. It can depend. Um, and I like to pay attention to major wind switches during the day. So if you got a south wind and it's going to switch to a north wind, me and you were talking about that time lapse that a buck will get up and he'll move to a new bedding area. You said it was like eight minutes, I think you said. Yeah, I'll have to talk to Bill about the exact time again. It was it was something that Bill had told me because he was looking at a bunch of GPS collar study data of, of mature bucks. And yeah. he looked at enough of them to basically put together an average of after a major wind switch in hill country, it took bucks on average this many minutes before they got up and changed beds. And it was like much quicker than I would have thought. It was also quicker, if I remember right, than the average doe would. Yeah. Um, I'll just get right onto the bed. I'll hunt over top of the bed, especially in hill country. If you have thermals, I'm getting on that bed. I'm expecting him to switch to because if you're up on that point, where his bed is and he comes on that wind switch you're playing those thermals like if he ducks down and comes up the ridge the thermals are still rising and you're up on his bed so he's not catching your thermals at all if you're on that wind switch during the day if it's later you know past that uh you know eight nine o'clock depending on what kind of shading there is or late in the afternoon i like the midday switch and be right over top of that bed. And any way he comes in there, you're not having to pick a direction of travel. You're just waiting on him to come right in and get in that bed that you found, you know, postseason scouting or whatever. And you might pick the wrong bed, but they usually don't move far. But it has to be the major wind switch because if it's just a little off wind or if it goes from like, say you got a west wind and it switches to east wind, he's just going to wrap around the point that he's already on. He's not going to have to move the ridge system like 
if the ridge is running north and south and you have that north-south wind switch, he has to get off of that ridge pretty much because the wind's going to be hitting him the wrong way and he's going to want to get out of there. So I like to play that too. So I like to use hill country for that kind of setup no matter what time of year. Yeah, I like that. I'm always looking for opportunities that I might be able to get away with that exact type of thing because it's like it's not not very easy to get set up early enough in the morning and have a buck come in and you know not catch a jay hook in and and basically come in on that bed to where you can shoot him and that's giving you an opportunity where if you time it right it's just like he's coming back to his bed in the morning but you know broad daylight and one thing to consider if you have a south wind and you're getting on that south point your wind's going to be blowing straight where the deer's at so you want to make sure that either you have a really long connecting ridge that he's going to come over. If the ridges are really close together, he could be picking up your wind possibly. So if it's you want to squeeze off to one side of the ridge where you can shoot to the bed, yeah. And, or if you have, or if you have that just off wind, like if it's a southwest wind, then it's going to switch to like the north wind or northeast wind and you have that just off then you can hug that side of the ridge where it's just blowing just off the ridge that he's on so he's not picking up your scent by accident because wind can do a lot of funny things in hill country and it can carry your scent down there it might not but i just like to play i like to stack my cards in my deck as much as i can so i like to be just off and play the wind so if it's a straight line wind, you might have to back off that ridge and wait in the bottom. And right when it switches, you're going to have to haul butt to get up there and get set up quick. So you got to have a really fast, efficient setup, maybe set up a little lower than normal, like maybe two sticks so you can fly up the tree and be set up in five minutes, especially if that buck's, you know, getting out of his bed in eight minutes and he's coming your way, you know, you got to get in there quick. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a lot and a lot of hill country too is set up to where you'd almost have to access it from the bottom anyways. And in those kind of scenarios, it's like, yeah, if he's bedding, you know, on the Northeast corner of a, a knob that's facing North, that's like, you can stay on the West side of it. And like you said, just kind of slip up the side of that Ridge to where your thermals and the winds not going to blow over to where he's at now. But as soon as that wind switches and he wants to loop around to the side that you're on, you know, you can just cover that last little bit, climb up in a tree and you're right there. Yeah, exactly. And it always seems like, too, a lot of times you find those beds, there might be a secondary browse source or something up on top. Like maybe there's, like maybe in the Ohio-type region, I've heard people talking about Greenbrier, like yeah. in the southern Minnesota hills or southwest Wisconsin. It seems like a lot of times you got buckthorn that kind of does something similar where the top of that knob might be choked down with buckthorn, but then yeah. there's like a line where it stops or it thins out and the, a lot of times you'll find the beds like right on the bottom of that line where it's a combination of that transition line of the vegetation yep. along with the, the wind advantage of the terrain. And it's like, you might just slip right around that, that cover edge to get to where that wind now becomes more advantageous for them when the wind switches. Yeah. They'll move on that wind tunnel a lot. Uh, they'll have a trail like halfway down the ridge and they'll have another trail on the tip. Um, on those transition lines, like halfway up the ridges, like you're saying, we got like this wild honey locust, not honey locust, but, uh, wild honeysuckle stuff that grows here. It's kind of nasty and gnarly. Uh, 
kind of like a buck brush too type stuff that grows on top of ridges. And I'll notice like those ridges will be always be way more hotter than a lot of the other stuff just because of that. It has that cover and that transition line. And I'll find like a scrape usually on that or uh, just the sign rub, signpost rub or just a random rut rub sometimes too. You got to kind of decipher what it is. If it's between like the two bedding points, usually it might, it's probably going to be like a community scrape or a signpost rub. But if it's only like one bedding point, it's just like usually a random like marking or something. So it depends on how it's set up too. But um, you can key in on that too to kind of pick because he might not come right over the top of the ridge and come right to the ridge right opposite of him. He might veer off and go down that wind tunnel or take that side uh side ridge trail and pop up on the ridge that's next to it because it has more uh diversity and stuff on it or cover so that's where you gotta get in there in the postseason and really dig into your scouting and then that's what like i said in the last podcast that a lot of people don't talk about i like to pop into a lot of spots during summer when i'm hanging cameras and i'll check the browse and i'll look to see what it looks like when it's greened up because i'm finding these spots in the postseason or like two postseasons ago I found it so I like to bounce in and see it when it's all greened up and that can give you a little bit of a different picture too sometimes it'll lock me in on an area that's a little bit better from the bed on that wind switch yep yeah that makes sense and we talked about hills we talked about flatter ag ground and a little bit of like river bottom, but I, when I think of river bottom, I don't necessarily always think of, you know, like a Creek that's running through ag land. I think of like a bigger river yeah. that's, you know, a little bit harder to cross, but you have those winding oxbows and like a place we hunted in North Dakota a couple of years ago, it was river bottom and the oxbow was maybe 10 acres. I think it was pretty big and it was pretty thick and yeah. there was some lines of bigger trees in it, but in the areas where there weren't big trees, there was a lot of head high cover and brush. And there must have been there must have been twenty deer back there if I had to, to guess all better kind of back at that oxbow and then they'd move yeah. off to ag. Uh how much of that kind of stuff do you hunt in the early season? Uh quite a bit because I feel like you can get in there pretty easy because you're you can hide just like the deer are hiding when you're accessing it. I like to key in on the honey locust grows a lot in the big river bottoms like that here in Iowa. So I like to find that because it seems like the honey locust, no matter where it is, they really key in on that early and late. So that early season, I think it's a major food source before they move out to the big ag. Um, stinging nettles, man. A lot of guys don't think about that, but they love to browse on stinging nettles. If nobody knows what they are, if you ever rubbed up against one, you'll know what it is pretty quick because it'll just burn your skin like crazy for a while if you touch it or something. And they really love to eat that. So I'll even key in on that to set up uh, close to a bedding area because I feel like they'll browse their way out to that. For me, I like boat. I like to use a boat, a kayak, something to come in off the backside of the river. You can climb right up in a tree. You're leaving no sin in there. So instead of like my one and dones where the buck knows I'm there, if you come right up out of the river and get right up in a tree, you're not leaving a scent trail. So I think you can hunt that a little bit more so you can have more opportunities in there it's hard to access those spots by 
boots on the ground just because there's so many deer layered in there. Like the does are out front and they're lighting you up on your way in. So you have to really watch access. You got to find ditches to come down or like a lagoon or a bayou you can uh, float across or wade across. I'm looking for things that I can hide myself in to access those spots. I do tend to find really big deer in those areas because it's so hard to get in on. But I think the biggest trick is using the water, like just come right down the river. And they're used to seeing people go down the river in boats and stuff all the time. So if you just slide right up on the bank and get in there, I think that gives you optimum opportunity. Because uh, if you're going boots on the ground, sometimes you can't get that 100-yard buffer. you got to back off, and you'll be outside of that bubble. And most of the time, that buck's not making it to you. That's when you got to use like that cold front and find like his primary scrape or you got to put a mock scrape in there and you're just you almost got to get lucky that he just happened to move earlier that day well you're not putting the cards in your deck per se doing it that way so i like the water access the best yeah i like that a lot too and one thing i've learned i'm sure you figured this out too is getting close with the water access you gotta have your kayak game on point so easy to like, you know, drop a paddle accidentally against the plastic and make a big loud clang. Yeah. Like, the sound aspect of that, even like making natural versus unnatural noises in the water. I mean, there's ducks and stuff that are always making racket in the water, but it's pretty easy if you're not careful to make a sound that is not natural also. Yeah. You got to be uh, super cautious of everything you're doing, especially if you're trying to get in there in the morning in the dark. You have to be really careful because you can't see that good. So you tend to make more noise in the morning. So if you're going to get in the morning, I'd go super early. So you, if you do make noise, the deer are probably out in that destination food source still. Uh, the mature bucks will usually be in there before daylight. So you just got to make sure you give yourself plenty of time and get set up in there in the afternoon. It's a little bit easier because you can see, you can try to be stealth. Um, if you don't have a bow mount on your kayak, you can make a rod holder set up with a two by four. So it slides down into your two rod holders behind you and you can hook a little transom trolling motor to it. So you don't have to paddle. Yeah. So yeah, then you can just use that trolling motor, especially to fight current. Like leaving's hard if you're trying to paddle up current and you got a big rain or if the water's just moving fast. So that little hand controlled trolling motor with that rod holder mount works really good if you don't have like a transom base plate to hook it to or anything like that. Super cheap and easy. Um, one of my buddies actually stealth stripped the top of his kayak <laughs> <laughs> because it worked too. I mean, we hit it with stuff and it didn't make as much noise. It didn't have like that really loud, like echoing plasticky sound you get when you slap the paddle against it. I'm sure that made uncle Lou pretty happy. I don't even know if he knows about it. I might have to get him a picture sometime. And he stealth stripped the handle of his paddle, too. Yeah, I could see myself doing that before I stealth stripped the entire surface <laughs> of, a, of a kayak. But I, hey, I, I, like the, I like the enthusiasm. That's pretty sweet. Yeah, sometimes you're dedicated over the top. Whatever works. Yeah, and I, oh, what that, uh, the whole water oxbow thing reminded me. Uh, that hunt I referenced earlier where we were, my wife and I were hunting that oxbow. The biggest buck that we ended up seeing back there actually wasn't bedded back on the oxbow. Yeah. He was bedded. Like on the way in there, there was some private and they had a feeder. 
Okay. Up there. And he was bedded to where he was in a ditch just downwind of that feeder. Oh, yeah. So whenever anybody went in there and they had like a ladder stand, he knew. Yeah. And we ended up almost walking right up on top of him. Um, just the way that we accessed into that public piece. But uh, we ended up jumping them, and we ended up going back further, and there's a bunch of deer back there anyway that we got on. But I thought it was interesting that he wasn't doing the textbook oxbow bedding thing. He was doing, like, the textbook big buck thing of, like, yeah. figuring out the most advantageous for him to keep tabs on what was going on people-wise. Yeah, there's a lot of variables that go into it. If if that feeder probably wasn't there, he'd probably be back on that oxbow, honestly. So that feeder influences, that's something that you don't normally take into account. You just got to kind of figure out or like some time there'll be pressure that you're not anticipating and it might shift that buck to watch that pressure. And even if you have that oxbow, like you said, they might not always be there. Sometimes they're just watching the parking lot. They'll be on like a little finger in a field that pops out by the parking lot and the river will be back behind them or that oxbow would be back there. So he's more using the oxbow as like a, a getaway. Like when he gets pressured yeah. or somebody too close to him, he just blows back to that oxbow for safety. But sometimes they'll be out on the outer edge of that transition line between like the open ag or CRP uh, there's some spots in Iowa where like CRP will bump up to like river bottom stuff. And I really like that because it gives it diversity to key in on because a lot of river bottoms like really monotonous. Like it's just the same stuff for miles. So you got to I like to key in like elevation changes, uh, crops, CRP, anything that'll give you diversity. I really like to lock in on because it'll help you out like big willow groves like you'll just be driving down you'll just see these big giant willow groves on the side of the river it might not be in an oxbow but the deer will be bedded in that because it just gives them some diversity that and it breaks up their monotonous and they like to bed in that type willow stuff i find the willow bedding a ton even on like creeks or even like ag ditches if there's willow groves and stuff they love those willows and get back in there yeah yeah i I've definitely noticed a lot of similar things in terms of the willows and some of the river bottom places that I've, I've hunted and some of the bigger river bottoms too, they get flooded a lot. Yeah. I've noticed that, uh, in those types of systems, you might have almost like two different types of understory. You might have like one, one kind that's just super thick and it's almost even hard to walk through. Yeah. And then that might be contrasted by like, you just hit an edge and it's just wide open, like you can see 300 yards underneath the tree canopy, and it's just like sand underneath, because that's like where the, you know it frequently would flood and would kill all the undergrowth. Yeah, I find that a lot here. You hit that, like the silt line, and it's just nothing but silt for like 30 yards, and then you run into that first vegetation layer where it's like that stinging nettles, and you got like young honey locusts, and then it'll bump up to something else. If the river's flooding a lot, I like to find the high ground. I look for any kind of terrain height because that'll be more stable and it'll push the deer out of there. After it floods, I think the deer don't move back in right away. It'll take a while. So I'm looking for like the high ground in those areas because that'll be stable and the deer will get pushed up there and they'll have browse and everything they need until the river bottom regenerates itself. No, that makes a makes a lot of sense. 
setup wise, is there anything you're doing early season that you're not doing other times of the year? I'm not hunting high. I tell you that I'm hunting nine, to 15 feet. Um, if you get too high in the tree, the bucks can see you out of the bedding and the, the forest story or whatever you got, all the leaves, it's harder to shoot the higher you get because you got that canopy that's really low during the early season. So I like to stay low. I don't like a bunch of stuff in front of me. I got to shoot through them. So traditionally, a lot of guys will get behind the trees in the saddles where I'm getting on the side of it. And I'm doing that hard lean like the videos I sent you from that buck I shot's point of view where I just look like a branch. Yep. So I'm not I'm not sitting and I'm not half leaning. I'm leaning like three foot away from the tree at that angle. I'm holding my bow the last hour of daylight when I'm anticipating that deer to come in so I don't have to move. Because when you're on the side of the tree like that, you don't have a lot of room for error. you got to be able to do microscopic movements, like just draw the bow straight back and shoot. So I really love doing that. Um, so a lot of guys probably are scared to do that, but I, I mean, it's doable cause I do it. I mean, I shot the last two bucks I shot, I shot at nine and 10 feet. So you can get away with hunting a lot lower, even out of the saddle. It's just more about your backdrop. So you really want to take into account what's behind you that you're going to blend in with you and pick a tree based on that. And then definitely just have your gear dialed in. You want to be quiet. You want to be efficient. Little movement as possible. Uh, you want to be comfortable. So you want to have a lot of practice and repetition with your setup. So I like to do that before early season starts to get dialed in. I don't carry in food or water still. I go pretty minimalist on gear. I'm just carrying the bare necessities. I'm only hunting afternoons unless I get like that rare, like high pressure or I get that scenario where the deer's long lining back to the bedding and I think I can get in there at one or two o'clock in the morning. I'm doing more of that in like flat terrain because the hill country with the thermals and the J hooks, it's a lot harder to hunt beds in the morning because that deer's coming in from below you. Um, I'm wearing like merino wool because when you're sweating to death early season, it's just, it's taking that moisture off your body quick and drying out. I'm not using really any scent control. You're going to sweat to death anyway. So why waste your time doing that? Just pay attention to your access, watch the winds and thermals like crazy. And almost like guys will pay attention to the wind, but they always forget about the thermals. Even in farm country, there's thermals that guys don't think they're that's there, but they're there. So really get dialed in on the wind that you're using early and just don't be afraid to get close because early season, you got all the canopy, you got all the high brush, all the high stem count. You can really get close to some deer that you think you can never get. Sometimes I'll be with like 50 yards of a bedded buck and not, you're just a couple feet off the ground. So he doesn't see you get set up, you know, or you might just stay on the ground. Like some of your setups you sent me with those laydowns. I think those are really good possibilities early season because you got that uh, horizontal cover that can keep you hidden. But if you're if you're hunting off the ground like that, you got to keep in mind like kind of your your setup you're shooting with your arrow and stuff like that a little bit more because you're kind of shooting through the vegetation. Where if I'm a couple feet up off the ground, I'm shooting over the top of it. Yeah. So you want to be, yeah, you just want to be versatile. 
you want to be prepared for different things. I was messing with that two-stick system with the three-step removable aider where you can repel down. But I think I'm going to add more sticks because those tethered one sticks are so light. I found that a lot of times I'm hunting some really extreme leaning trees. And if you're hunting a leaner, you can't climb with that aider at all. So it's going to hurt you. So I'd rather be prepared for multiple scenarios. So I might carry like an extra stick or two and just leave them at the base of the tree. And then if I want to use my aider, I can if I have the opportunity. Um, if you're hunting river bottoms too, I like running a little bit longer uh, rope mods or daisy chains or like the dyna ropes because I'm hunting more big cottonwood trees. I might have to get, you know, 10 foot around the tree and max it out just to get up in them. I do like hunting those big cottonwoods like that. So I just really be versatile early season and don't be afraid to get in early and try to take into account all kinds of variables. I mean, all the little details is what kills big deer to me, I think. Yeah, that's a commonality I see with a lot of guys that are consistently successful is they all, even if they don't seem like it on the, on the surface, you dig into what they do on a regular basis or you ask them to dive a little bit deeper into a specific story of a deer that they killed you'll find that they can always pull back a lot of the small stuff that went into the overall setup and why they did what they did and what worked in their favor maybe some some instance where they got you know lucky because they planned on something happening and the other thing happened but it ended up working out all right um, but there's always that extra level of thought yeah sometimes you get lucky um, yeah, I'm not right every time there'll be a deer that comes out of nowhere. Like you said, that buck came right in the way you came in. Like there might be a satellite bedding area. I don't know about, I've had deer just pop out of nowhere where I never expected them. Sometimes even downwind of me, my scent's blowing right to them and like, they're not picking up on my scent or they just don't care for whatever reason. Um, and the little details are hard to pick up just through me telling people about them it's more through experience like the more you hunt the more you scout the more you see scenarios there are so many variables that can go into terrains and situations and personalities of bucks like there's no there's no cookie cutter system or answers for a lot of things a lot of it just comes down to woodsmanship experience um things you pick up off of guys that you keep in mind or consider but uh failure is the best teacher you know if a big buck a big buck lights you up man and you get that sick feeling like you never want that feeling again i talk about a lot and it makes you learn from that and you pay attention to it um i run a lot of milkweed stuff early i'm trying trying to learn how like the terrain influences because when there's vegetation and stuff and leaves on the trees the wind's doing a lot of funky things that might be different in like november versus early season yeah, so we covered a lot of a lot of different things and went a lot of different avenues, different terrains, different strategies, weather, buck bedding, ag fields. I guess what would you kind of lay out as some final final thoughts to keep in mind in regards to early season hunting? I would definitely be checking the wind with the milkweed because I do a lot of my scouting postseason. So when I'm postseason scouting, there's not any canopy or vegetation in the way of the wind. And when you have that uh, vegetation and leaves on the tree and that canopy is developed, it can influence the winds a lot differently than what 
they were when I found the beds or found the bedding area where I have the kind of a couple trees picked out for what wind I want to be on. So I'm constantly checking the wind with the milkweed because um, it'll transition and do different things you don't expect it to do based on like canopy, vegetation, how high in the tree you are can even change that. It's a little easier to get away with stuff just being a couple feet off the ground versus uh, hunting right on the ground. And just don't be afraid to go in close. You got to get in that hundred yard bubble and you got to get set up quiet and quick and low and efficient. And uh, don't be afraid to take risks. Uh, make sure that you can find as many deer as you can to have an opportunity to hunt. So you don't feel like you have to play it cautious and don't fall into that trap. If you do only have four or five bucks, um, just go in there and try to kill them on the first sit every time and just know the area good enough to bounce around to the different bedding areas. Don't be afraid to check overlook spots or use uh, oddball like locations and terrain features and stuff like we talked about with like all the waterways and woodlot islands and stuff like that. And just be confident in what you're doing. And if you fail, like you're going to learn and just keep going and there's always another deer and you'll get better as you go. That'll do it for this week's episode. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Empire on Instagram and Facebook. Leave a five-star review on iTunes. And if you're looking for additional content from myself, subscribe to DIY Sportsman on YouTube and hit the bell icon to be notified of new videos. You can also follow DIY underscore Sportsman on Instagram. And with that, thanks for listening.